Welcome to the Lab Rats Podcast. You are now entering the maze. So have we talked about Mark yet? Uh, no, I don't think we have. What What is it even? Yeah, so how'd it go? Um, it was, it was good. I think it was the first year I did it with a vest. So I was like, I was happy. My goal was like just to finish, just to get through it with a vest. I think this is my fourth year doing it. I want to say. And did you, did you do 100 pushups or 100 pull-ups, 200 pushups, 300 squats, or did you break it up into sets? No, I broke it up into sets. So I did a mile run and then the 20 rounds of five, 10, 15, and then another mile run. Okay. Um, and I, so like, I've never, I, I got a vest recently in the past, I think like around Christmas time is when I, when I got my weight vest. So like I had been just doing like random workouts with it. So I, I was kind of used to how it felt, which really helped like in doing the full Murph with a vest on. I was used to like just how, how, how you move your body with it. Cause it is different. You have to move at like a, a different pace. Um, so yeah, and no, I was happy to get through it. I thought my time was good until I heard your time <laughs> for a first timer with it. It's by no means good for an experienced person, but I finished it in like 55 minutes, I think. Dude, um, I think, I feel like anything under an hour is like solid. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so relative. I mean, this, everybody's really so is. different with this workout. Like some people really struggle with pull-ups. Some people really struggle with push-ups. Some people are like incredible at both. It really just depends um, on what your strengths are for this workout. But what was the hardest part for you? Honestly, it's usually the push-ups. Like that's always been my struggle and yeah, my holdup me for too. me. It wasn't as it that still was the holdup for me, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Just because like I'm like very strict with my with my um push-ups. Like I I my chest always touches the ground when I do yeah, a push-up where yeah. most people cheat their push-ups. So with a vest on, I had like two inches where I, I couldn't go all the way to the ground because my vest right. hit. So I wasn't going as deep as normal. So I wasn't actually like sore from those surprisingly. So I was able to get through those, but they, they did slow me down a little bit. Okay. So then what about you? You as well did it with a vest for the first time, right? Yeah. Yeah. First time with a vest. Um, I was, I was pretty happy. So I think I did it in, it was like right under 45 minutes Jeez. so 44 minutes and like 57 seconds. That was good. And I was, I was like, I just want to complete it, you know, ideally under an hour, but I just want to complete it. And I was really worried about the running Were you, you were out. Like, was the, did you do the workout inside a gym? Yeah, it was inside a gym, but like the garage doors were open and thankfully I did it at like 730 AM. Okay. They had it split up into heats and it was like really cloudy. Okay. So it wasn't like as hot as last year. Last year was like 90 degrees. Yeah, and there's like no AC. Oh, yeah, it was brutal. Yeah, I thought I was gonna pass out last year I know. on my way back, but it was good. I'm hoping next year to do it completely unpartitioned. <sighs> is that what they call it? Where you yeah. do 100 straight pull-ups, 200 straight push-ups, 300 air squats. Yeah, yeah, I've never done it like that, so I want to try it like that too. Dude, uh, my brother-in-law he did a uh, double Murph. <laughs> that is he insane. Is so did, um, how did he break his reps up? when doing it like that i don't that. even remember uh, he he actually did a um a youtube video on it. and he has a he has a really cool youtube channel where he like reviews fitness gear yeah and he does like an in-depth breakdown of it uh his channel is average dad reviews fitness um, yeah i've seen a few of his videos there he, he he has a little comic um 
comedic yeah, he's, relief to it so it's pretty funny yeah yeah he's funny and he like he produces them pretty well so yeah he he did like a little video on his double murph but and he tried to get me to do it and i'm like <laughs> <laughs> not this year maybe next year yeah so did you do anything to like recover or do you typically do anything to recover like when you have a, a longer workout like that what do i do drink lots of water like that's typically yeah my go-to i don't think i really did anything specific um i surprisingly had like a ton of energy after i did it like hmm. two hours after i was like raring to go again really i'm like man i feel good but no no i didn't do much what about you um not not a ton um i usually like i honestly didn't feel terrible after this i was i was kind of surprised but typically if i do feel like really bad after a workout i will i'll do some rolling out right afterwards with a either a foam roller or like a pvc pipe roller or a lacrosse ball um so i'll do that yeah make sure i'm well hydrated if i like sweated a ton replenish electrolytes if it was if i didn't sweat that much i'll just drink normal water um and then eat a pretty decent like you know nutrient dense meal and then i like to take a hot hot bath I used to do Epsom salt baths. We're going to get into Epsom salt to see yeah. if, if those actually work. But I do like to take like a hot bath for just kind of like relaxation. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So speaking of recovery, uh, today we're going to talk about three recovery myths and dig into the evidence behind them. I mean, there are so many articles out there about best recovery tactics, you know, after a big workout, what can you do to not only like help your muscles recover, but how can you maximize muscle growth? And there's so many strategies out there. So we picked three of them and we're going to break down and see if they're legit. And so the number one, Aaron just mentioned, Epsom salt baths. So th this, this myth is Epsom salt baths is a great way to relieve muscle soreness. Uh, if you're a runner or an exercise enthusiast, you've probably heard from somebody that you should take an Epsom salt bath for muscle recovery. And so the scientific name for Epsom salt is magnesium sulfate, which is, as you might have guessed, magnesium, sulfur, and oxygen. And do you know where the name Epsom came from? I have you not. ever heard this? No, no, I haven't heard it. I don't know if this is common knowledge, but... It's called Epsom salt because it was originally discovered in the town of Epsom in Surrey, England. Mm, okay. Is that and like, that is it like stuck. mine, mine there or what? And that's where it was originally like found, I guess. Like, okay. yeah, however they mine salt. Yeah. Um, but the main compound is magnesium and it's, it's well documented. It's well researched that magnesium is really important to our health. I'll, I'll put some studies in the show notes if you want to look through those but that's very well documented and well accepted in the health and scientific community it plays an important role in a lot of biochemical reactions in our bodies so it helps us convert our food to energy it can help with muscle relaxation muscle cramping uh, help with protein uh, synthesis or, or helping our body create protein help with dna rna repair uh Sleep and stress management, you may have heard it recommended for that. I actually take uh, magnesium glycinate before bed, and that really helps with my sleep. How many milligrams do you take of that each day? 400. Okay, yeah, same. They're big pills. They're not, not easy yeah. to swallow. 
uh, and then constipation, it's used as a laxative sometimes. Um, so basically, it helps hundreds of enzymes in your body produce uh, their necessary function. So it's, it's useful, this is well accepted, well researched, and it's thought that about 50% of the US population is deficient in magnesium. And I'll cite um, where I got that number. And the reason is because it's difficult to get magnesium solely from our diet. What um what foods is it is it like primarily found in? Like what's the your biggest biggest hitters when it comes to high magnesium level foods? Uh nuts and seeds. I think pumpkin okay. seeds actually have the highest level of magnesium. Huh. Um spinach or Swiss chard also. Um, but nuts and seeds are are the biggest. And it used to be a lot higher, but apparently however we've cropped our our soils or whatever we've done to the soil now they're the magnesium has been depleted so there's less magnesium in our food and so typically people need to supplement for magnesium um and so so magnesium is important and the idea with epsom salt getting back to that is that you can better absorb the magnesium when it's dissolved in water thereby getting the benefit of magnesium to the muscle quicker and some people have a problem digesting uh, like a, a supplement, like a pill. So there's this idea that, well, if you absorb it through the skin, it bypasses the intestinal tract and you can get mm. the benefit without any gut irritation. Hmm. And so for athletes, this is important because magnesium can help uh, your muscles dispose of lactate, you know, that feeling of burning or that muscle fatigue uh, and cramping. Now there's debate whether or not uh, lactate in the muscle translate to soreness, but that's that's another episode for another day. Um, but that that's the theory behind Epsom salt is you get magnesium directly to the muscle. It can help with soreness, muscle repair, all that good stuff. Unfortunately, there's very little research to support this. To support the absorption through, through the skin? Yeah. Yeah, I should have clarified that. M magnesium, again, is beneficial. But whether or not that humans can actually like efficiently absorb it through the skin... It just really, like, it hasn't been studied. Magnesium has been studied, but nothing particularly on magnesium sulfate baths in relation to muscle soreness. Now, like, the skin absorbs a lot, you know, but it's also a shield that blocks out a lot of pathogens. So it's largely unknown whether or not magnesium can be absorbed in the skin. Now, there was one study. Um, it was really actually more of an experiment than a study. In 2006... Uh, there's a biochemist, uh, Dr. Waring, Waring, W-A-R-I-N-G, from the University of Birmingham uh, in the UK, not Alabama. She took 19 volunteers, and for seven days, the volunteers took a 12-minute bath with Epsom salts in it. The temperature of the bath was between 120 and 130 degrees Fahrenheit, Ooh. which seems like really hot that, to me. That is scalding. Right? Yeah. That's what I thought. Like hot tubs are like a, what, 105 degrees? Yeah, or hot tubs like 105. That? I do. So we have like a, uh, it's called an on demand hot water tank. So I can like, or not, it's not even a tank, it's just like a box. So I can set the temperature oh, of nice. it. Um, and it's always that. So if I turn it to all the way hot, like I know all the water is always going to be that temperature. It doesn't run out. Ours is set to one uh 116 so if i do a bath i'll crank it to 116 and it will the whole bath will be that temperature and that is like that is hot yeah like, i feel like you can like cook meat at that temperature <laughs> yeah i mean i think i think it's manageable but that's that's a hot yeah. bath but the, it was 50 to 55 degrees celsius and unless the uh the google converter is wrong <laughs> that's uh that's what that translates to so uh they took hot baths 12 minutes a day for seven days straight and then those baths 
had between 400 and 600 grams of magnesium salts in it. That's roughly between one to two cups. And then they would take urine samples two hours after the bath every day and tested for magnesium levels. And what they found is that after the seven days, 16 of the 19 participants showed an increase in magnesium levels um, on a daily basis. So each day it increased. And so what they concluded is that bathing in Epsom salt is a safe way and easy way to increase sulfate and magnesium levels in the body. All right. So sounds good. It sounds like a good start to, to an experiment. Couple problems with this. Number one, it was never published in a peer reviewed journal. So first red flag, the methodology results conclusions were never reviewed. And the only place it was published was online as far as I could tell. And the website was the Epsom salt council.org, which basically exists to promote the benefits of Epsom salt. Also, it was a very small sample size, only 19 volunteers. Uh, they also didn't use a control group, so they didn't have a group that just took a warm bath with no Epsom salt. And so far, those results have not been replicated. Um, there hasn't been studies contrary to that. It's just there hasn't been studies around it. Apparently, it's not very interesting to scientists. Hmm. So this study should really be taken with a grain of salt. <laughs> Good one. Sorry, that, that <laughs> pun was inevitable. Um now, there is a review study I'll post in the show notes. It, it's pretty straightforward. I think most people could, could read through and, and gather uh, the important information. It was a review study on transdermal magnesium published in the Nutrients Journal. And they, they looked at studies that were reviewing uh, magnesium absorption in the skin, so like magnesium lotion. I won't get into all that. What they concluded is there just isn't evidence to support this at this time, like there's nothing showing that magnesium can be absorbed through the skin. Yeah, it's one of kind of one of those things similar to like essential oils where it's like it's not it hasn't been totally debunked like this stuff does not work, but it's also like there's really no evidence to support it. It's kind of, you know, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Further testing needs done, but the evidence as it stands isn't strong. Yeah, I was actually surprised at kind of how weak the evidence was. And it, yeah. and it could very well be like, yeah, like you said, it's not a complete debunk. This could be a safe, effective way to deliver magnesium. The research just isn't there. And, you know, it, it feels good to take a hot bath. So right. some of the benefits that people report feeling could be due to a warm bath. Who knows? Yeah. Um, there was also a, an article I came across where this guy kind of basically did what we're doing now. We just went through every piece of evidence around Epsom salt bath. And then he looked at like, the biology of the skin and can it absorb these, you know, can it absorb uh, compounds in the skin? And I'll post a link there. It's really interesting. This guy was like super thorough. But anyway, so yeah, um, not as uh, kind of a sure proof thing that most people think. Yeah, it's fascinating. Like this one and the next one that I'll be talking about, how like how little evidence is built around these. Like, I mean, I think Epsom salt and like icing are two of the biggest like you know, post-workout recovery things that you should do. And if you look at the evidence, it's like almost non-existent, which is crazy that it's not even there. And like, it's also surprising that like, it's not currently being studied. Like, I don't know why. I know. Like, that blew it, me away. Yeah. Like so many people cite this, like almost every article you go to on recovery will be saying, you know, right. Take an Epsom salt bath. Mm -hmm. There's like no evidence to support it. Yeah. It's just one of those things that it kind of just turned into a health trend and right that's that so but um, magnesium though magnesium is is beneficial yes. taking that orally yeah so yeah you should if you can get your magnesium levels tested most 
a lot of people are deficient because um, it's hard to get through diet. So I found great success with sleep through that. I mean, we're not going to make any recommendations on dosages or anything, but it's it's worked well for me. Yeah. And as far as Epsom salt baths, if it works for you, if it makes you feel better, I mean, go for it. I, I don't think it's going to hurt you. So if you swear by it, you know, keep doing it. Yeah. So the second myth <clears throat> we'll be covering is icing. So, you know, icing, there's this myth out there that icing is a critical step in healing injuries and recovering the muscles faster. Um, and it's interesting. It's a really interesting topic. Like reading this, I was fascinated with, um, what, with what's out there, uh, because every time you, you know, go to a doctor with an injury, say you sprain your ankle, uh, twist, you know, your wrist, jam a finger. They're almost always going to tell you, use the rice method, rest, mm -hmm. ice, compression, elevation. Um, so they all tell you to ice and that's after a, after a, an acute injury like that. Uh, and also with, in the sports field, if you look at, I mean, even the professional athletes, you'll see them in ice baths after a, a run, You'll see them icing their shoulders, icing their knees after a game. It is so common in the sports industry. It's so common among doctors to ice injuries and ice after sports. And a lot of this was brought on by the, the doctor who invented the, the rice or coined the term rice, the rice method. Um, it's Dr. Dr. Rice. Not Dr. Rice, actually. No, it is. It's Dr. Dr. Merkin. And I'll get into him in a little bit here, but just like a brief synopsis here, uh, the, the thought process with icing is that it will, it'll reduce inflammation, it'll reduce swelling and, and really minimize pain. So that's the purpose of icing after, you know, you sprint your quads are, they're aching, you know, they are inflamed and icing helps kind of reduce them, relieve the pain after you sprain your ankle it swells, it gets really hot, it gets really red. So you ice it mm -hmm. to reduce the inflammation. Um, so it's, it's, that's the purpose of icing. And we've always been, you know, told this idea of inflammation being bad. You know, we don't, we don't want inflammation in the body. That's kind of been a big buzzword the past decade or so that we want minimal inflammation in the body. Well, inflammation is a, actually like a very important step that our body does on its own. It's, it's part of the immune system. It's an immune response that our body has to injury. And there are three steps to uh, the recovery process of an injury. So it, the body will go through three stages. The first one is inflammation. The second is repair. And then the third is remodel. So your body has to go through that inflammation stage. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like it, it needs to, it's doing that to protect the body. Mm -hmm. It's sending blood to a, sp a specific area that has been injured and it's bringing, um, we touched on this, I think a little bit in our NSAIDs episode, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yeah. We talked a lot about this with our NSAIDs episode with how kind of a, a wound is, is healed. So inflammation is sending blood to the injured area. And it is sending uh, inflammatory cells to to promote healing in that area. So inflammation is not uh, inherently a bad thing, especially for you know acute inflammation. Like if you have a, a jammed finger, you're going to have inflammation initially. That's totally normal and that's a good thing. Where the danger with inflammation comes in is when it's chronic inflammation, where you have 
inflammation for for a very long duration uh, within the body. So some examples of kind of chronic conditions that most people are familiar with, like arthritis, that is an inflammatory condition where you're just always living in an inflamed state and it's not a good thing in that circumstance. Um, Crohn's, colitis, um, all types of diseases like that are where the body is basically, it's in, the immune system is fighting against the body's own cells uh, mm-hmm. by mistake and causing harmful inflammation. So there's acute inflammation, there's chronic inflammation. Acute inflammation is a good thing. It is, it's a part of the healing process. So then the question is, um, when we have these injuries, when we have these acute injuries and when there is inflammation, should we ice them? Like, do we want, do we want to stop that inflammation? And we've always been told, yes, like we want to get that inflammation down. It's a bad thing. Um, uh, use, use the rice method. Rest. Yeah. When I, when I sprained, sprained my ankle back in December, um, you know, went to the ER cause I thought it was broken and mm-hmm. yeah, he said the same thing. Yeah. Uh, rests, ice, uh, compression. And what's the E? Uh, elevation. Elevation. Right. Yes. So, so Dr. Merkin is who coined this term. And I want to say it was in the, uh, I could, I'm just going to pull up the article here to, to make sure I get the date on this correct. I think it was in the nineties is when he wrote this. Oh, seventies, 78 wow. is when this term was originally um, coined. And ever since then, ever since then, physicians have been recommending this. However, 2015, he wrote an article on his website and we'll post a link to it in the show notes where he's basically, um, kind of reversing his view on this and saying Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily something everybody should be doing for their injuries. And kind of his, his reason for this is that Ice, you know, it's it's freezing cold upon the skin and it is slowing things down. It is slowing the blood flow down, effectively stopping the blood flow. And when you stop the blood flow, yes, inflammation goes down, swelling goes down, and pain also goes down. Those do happen, which that's a good thing. But the inflammation process comes to a halting stop. And just because it stops, like it doesn't mean it's going to go into the repair phase next. It, it has to finish that inflammation process. Like it's, it has to go through that. All icing does to it is what Dr. Merkin says. All icing does is delays it. So you're not, you're not healing anything by, by icing it. Wow. That's man. That's, that's fascinating. Like the guy who coined it himself kind of reversed his stance on it. Yes. One, uh, he kind of just explains his process here in the article. Um, he says that when, uh, when muscles and other tissues are damaged, your immunity, your immune system sends inflammatory cells to tissues to start this healing process. And those, those inflammatory cells um, release a hormone called uh, insulin-like growth factor or IGF-1, and it releases those into the damaged tissue, which helps the muscle um, and other parts around it heal. But when you apply that ice to reduce the swelling, it, it does delay that process. So until you remove the ice, until the blood starts flowing again, that healing process has stopped and it's going to stop until you take the ice off. Um, he does say that, you know, it's, it is okay to ice for a few minutes after an injury because it, it is painful, you know, uh, twisting your ankle is painful. Mm-hmm. So you can put ice on, he, he recommends like 10 minute increments after an injury, I think 10 minutes on 20 off, but 
after six hours upon injury to stop icing at that point. Like your body mm-hmm. needs to start healing on its own. Um, and it needs to start that going through that inflammation process. So he says ice in 10 minute increments is fine. Really the only purpose of that is pain management. It's it's effectively the same as NSAIDs. And when we talked about this in our NSAIDs right. episode, that is not doing anything for the healing process. It still has to heal. All NSAIDs are doing are blocking the pain. It's not doing anything right. with healing the actual injury. So icing is is almost identical to that. Yeah. Like like it hurts because it is being well, it's injured, but mm-hmm. it hurts. It's inflamed, it's being repaired, and you kind of have to to get through that. Um, to heal yes yeah um he also something that's kind of important for people who who maybe do ice commonly is that you can actually you know kind of kill tissues from icing for too long Uh, the the decreased blood flow causes tissue to die um, and it can even cause if you ice long enough permanent nerve damage so you do have to be careful with that Hmm. um nothing wrong with icing for a few minutes after a sprained ankle, but it's by no means recovering you faster, healing you faster. Uh, and this isn't just like injuries like that. This is after, say you do, you know, just did sprints or you just did swimming and your shoulders are, are sore or your quads are sore and you ice them. Same exact concept that is not going to help you, um, recover faster. It's actually going to slow it down. So very wow. interesting. And he he cites a lot of studies in in this article, and I'm just not going to get into the into the studies because for we don't have time to mm-hmm. get to them. But he cites a bunch of studies. I have about four others that I read that we'll post in the show notes, all explaining this and basically showing evidence that there is no evidence that this helps recovery. Wow, yeah, that's that's really good to know because when I sprain my ankle in the future, which is bound to happen. <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, I guess if you can, if you can put up with the pain, right, right, then it's probably not best to ice. Yeah. And then, uh, just briefly here, uh, rest is another thing we're told to rest when we, when we hurt ourselves. And obviously, you know, if you sprain your ankle, you don't want to be walking on it, you know, immediately. Um, you probably do want to rest it for a little bit, but that's not to say to rest it until it's better. Cause it's not, it's not going to be better if you stay off of it completely like your body say yeah we'll just keep the ankle as an example if you twist your ankle you need blood flow there and after it goes to through the inflammation process which sends blood there after that process blood flow doesn't go there as often and in order to get blood there you have to move it you have to keep it active you don't want to be twisting it in weird directions but like do light stuff keep it moving don't just completely rest an injury because you need to move to get blood flow and you need blood flow to recover yeah basically if you kept it iced elevated compressed why do i always miss one rice uh wait, rest. <laughs> rest ice compression elevation yeah like if you did that all the time permanently it would never get better yeah no it would not or it would be super super slow so that is super interesting and that's really good to know yeah so third one, what do we got? All here? right. Myth number three for maximum muscle recovery and growth. You should refuel with protein as soon as possible after a workout. I've, yeah, now, I've heard this one for years. How you always see, you know, bros with their blender bottle 
like shaking up their protein like right after they live because they have to get in with like the 20 minute window um, yeah yeah they're so I don't anabolic know. window they call it yeah yeah so like there are a lot of different theories on timing of macronutrient intake so carbs protein fat um you know whether you do that before during or after exercise right now i'm just looking at post-workout intake and primarily protein so this idea took off in the early 2000s with this publication called Nutrient Timing, The Future of Sports Nutrition by Dr. John Ivey. Um, I'll link that if you want to look at it. But, you know, this was very popular. Uh, this, this Dr. Ivey also did a study that's often cited in 2008 in the International Society of Sports and Nutrition. Uh, th- that study was also called Nutrient Timing. And then in the early 2000s, there were a couple other studies around nutrient timing. And the theory is you can better rebuild damaged muscle tissue by consuming a specific ratio of nutrients within a specific time frame after a workout. And then this is going to help with those gains and fat loss. And it's called the anabolic window. You know, you have this 20 to, to 40 minute period where you've got to get your protein in for maximum efficiency. So this was very popular in the early 2000s and There is some evidence to support this. However, more recent studies seem to contradict this idea, or at least offer some alternative explanations. So there's this review study in 2013, uh, which is really interesting. It's called Nutrient Timing Revisited. Is there a post-exercise anabolic window? And again, I would recommend reading this. I I feel like it's pretty straightforward, and, and they touch on all the studies that have been done. And how there's just some some conflicting information between all these studies. Um, the theory is that the sooner you can consume protein after workout, the more effectively your body can use that to repair muscle damage, you know, resulting in bigger muscle gains. Um, there have been studies around this, but they conflict a lot in in that they're hard to compare. So some studies use you know a fasted workout versus an unfasted workout. Some used trained subject versus an untrained subject, so like an athlete versus somebody that doesn't work out. In some of these studies, they'll look at, they'll, they'll give them protein before and after a workout. So it's, how do you attribute, how do you attribute any muscle gains to just a post-workout if you were also given a pre-workout? That's kind of the takeaway there. The dosage was different for some of these studies and, and subjects within the studies. So it's hard to attribute any kind of protein synthesis or mu- muscle hypertrophy specifically to that anabolic window, or if it was just an increased protein intake. So there's conflicting results. And in any of these studies, it's hard to attribute post-workout protein to muscle growth specifically because of all these different things. Like, was it because you did a fasted workout? Was it because you were dealing with an untrained subject? So it's going to be easier for them to gain muscle mass than it would for somebody that's been training for years. Was it because you had a pre-workout or post-workout? So it's 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 hard to isolate this specifically to pro- post-workout protein intake. And these were all very short-term trials. So basically, there's just there's not evidence supporting that nutrient timing is this holy grail of building muscle like we once thought. Um, so something that I've heard people say, like around around this protein synthesis and muscle hypertrophy is that people want to get in food as quick as possible after a workout because they don't want basically their muscles to eat away that's kind of like a fear Mm -hmm. is that if they're trying to you know build the muscle that they're worried that'll get eaten away basically and be used as energy is that 
Is that a thing? Or is it always you're going to use glycogen first, fat next, and then like, will it ever get to a point where you're using muscle as energy? Not from anything that I read. I, I don't know how a human could get to that point unless you're like a, a really nutrient deprived. Okay. And your body has no fat, no glycogen to pull it from. That's not to completely dismiss nutrient timing. It may have an impact, but based on current studies, what is really clear is that total nutrient intake is more important than timing. So like when protein intake was increased, whether that was pre-workout, post-workout, you know, two hours after a workout, that helped with muscle gain. But the this idea that, well, it's really maximum, it's really priority to get it within this 20 to 40 minute window, um, there's just not evidence attributing it directly to that. Yeah. I think it'd be a different story for, for super competitive athletes, like athletes, let's say CrossFit athletes, for example, who are doing, you know, five, six workouts a day or Olympic level athletes who are doing this training day, like throughout the entire day, they're putting their body through tons of work. Like in those circumstances, timing of like when you consume carbs, when you consume protein, right. it's important for them. Um, yes. but for your average person who's working out once a day for 60 minutes, um, yeah, yep. like you said, the, the evidence isn't extremely strong that it's important, super important yeah. to focus on. There was one guy who had, had done like a rundown and I think he had a, he had a great summary of this. He said, rather than worrying about slamming down whey protein immediately after training, <laughs> shoving people out of the way on your mad dash to your gym bag for your super shake bottle, you can actually drive home take a shower, prepare and eat a delicious whole food mixed meal. Yeah. Basically, the data suggests that the total amount of protein and carbs you eat over the course of the day is more important for body composition and performance than nutrient timing strategies. Um, but like you said, for endurance athletes, if you're working out in a fasted state or yeah, if you're doing two a days, it, it's going to have more of an impact. But for the for the average person, they're, they're, you're not getting a huge advantage by slamming that protein shake 30 minutes after a workout. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. And all these are things that I had always believed. You know, I always thought like for sure you should ice. Like if you rolled your ankle, like, yeah, you have to ice after that. That's going to definitely right. help you. Or if you um, did like a crazy hard workout, like after Murph, like, yeah, ice your shoulders um, or take an Epsom salt bath. You'll feel better get your protein in like all these things i've i've always believed until you know recent years i've started you know reading you know articles and scientific studies that are kind of questioning these and um based upon the evidence there's there's not a ton of strong evidence for any of these claims yeah always do your due diligence like just because you read it in an article don't assume that that person did their research right see if they cite studies and then actually go to the study because a lot of times they may misrepresent the study. Yeah. So I think, you know, when we're dealing with health, take every precaution and, and these things aren't harmful, fortunately. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe the icing, you delay your healing a little bit, but none of these are harmful. It's just don't revolve your, you know, recovery tactics around things that have minimal evidence. Take care of yourself. Eat well. We've said it a million times. The best recovery tactic is sleep so yeah all right all right i think that's a wrap yeah hope you guys enjoyed if you uh you have any other like 
myths that you want us to look at, send us a message on Instagram and uh, we'll take a look at it. Yeah, I think we want to do a few more episodes like this in the future where we take some kind of things that, you know, take some some fitness or health or recovery myths and, and take a look at the evidence and see what it says. So if you have anything, shoot them on over. Yep. All right. Stay healthy. <laughs>